This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining the conversation today. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. Now, if you've been listening, and we sure hope you have, you know we are in this series called The Creative Process. We've covered all sorts of things related to the creative life, and we are processing different aspects of that. And so as we do that, we're looking at how does the creative life intersect with the digital age, and how does that help us? How does it hinder us? We've talked about all kinds of things, and we've heard from all of you listeners. We've loved that because in different ways, we're all pursuing types of creative art and work. And so Hannah, I'm so glad that we have been working on these things because it has been helpful for me as an artist. I I, I kind of hesitate to call myself an artist, but I do creative work. So I, I think I'm in that realm. I think that's so interesting because I feel that same reticence. Like, am I an artist? Am I a maker? Am I a creator? Like, I can say I'm a writer. I can say I'm an author. But then to kind of aspire to these grander categories, it feels a little like, oh, I don't know. That doesn't fit my, doesn't fit my mental perception of myself. But one of the things I think is fascinating is that, of course, at some level, we are all creators and makers, right? Um, but I think what the digital age has allowed for us is that those of us who wouldn't ever have an opportunity to even be in those spaces, suddenly we can be, even if it's only on the side, right? So there is this whole opportunity to take what in the past might have been just hobbies or interests and begin to ask questions about, well, can I do this more professionally? And maybe not full time, but there's definitely this opportunity to take the things we make and share them more broadly in ways that I think kind of defy categories. Definitely. And this whole question of whether you can take what you are doing and do it more often or do it on a grander scale, because possibly there are people out there who would be interested in engaging with that creative work with that artifact. That's so encouraging because the digital age connects us with people who are basically in our small little niche circle where we are all interested in something that is really um, specific. And maybe it's hard to find those like-minded, interested parties. But now the digital age allows us to do that. So we have potential here to connect with people. We do. And there's there's like new rags to riches stories, right? It used to be that the 
um, kind of American dream or the rags to riches story happened in a corporate space or the marketplace where someone's an entrepreneur with a very um, technical artifact or, or I think of the stories of like um, in history, like Andrew Carnegie, or even now in Silicon Valley, like you're looking at someone who's making something technical, but there's also these kind of rags to riches stories with people's art. And I know I, I've seen it online, especially on Instagram, where you'll see someone's work take off in a way that's almost magic. And it leaves the rest of us wondering, well, how should I relate to my creative work? Is that something that, you know, can be turned into a viable financial profession, you know, a profession that brings in resources? How should I fund it? Should I fund it? What? And I think there's all of these questions that, that in the past, maybe we didn't put ourselves in the box of creator or maker. We didn't even have the opportunity to distribute it. And now we do. And so we're left with these questions that maybe things used to just be hobbies, right? And now we're facing them as professional questions or questions of how would we continue to do our creative work in a space that really it could very easily turn into a full-time profession. It could. And I mean, we've talked about this. The concerning part of it is, do we try to monetize what we're doing? Is that negative? Is that positive? Is it possible? So we've talked about it in a in a broad sense of don't being with uh, the question of should we be swayed by um, the marketplace and and maybe we need to keep our our art pure and not be pursuing those those big marketing pushes like what we're seeing various people doing out online. But it brings back the question: if we're going to pursue this, we actually have to have some funding or some backing or have resources. And that's a real legitimate question. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And as we've done here on this series, we have a guest with us. We are so pleased to have Eric Loxmo with us. He is joining us to help us sort out these issues related to uh, non-traditional work requiring non-traditional funding. So Eric, thanks so much for joining Pers- today. Thank you both for having me. We're so thrilled you're here. I'm so, well, first of all, I'm so thankful for this conversation. Hearing your introduction here, I get to meet many, many artists and makers who are going through the same questions and conversations. So thank you for making this series possible. I know it'll be a great resource for so many. Well, Eric, we are thrilled that you're here, and we know this is going to be a, a real help and and a key part of this series. So, Eric, we are so happy to meet you, and we want all of our listeners to be familiar with y- who you are and your work and why we were so excited to invite you on, because you have had a, a wide and varied career. You've been in politics and film marketing in you have this passion for spreading great stories and highlighting good storytellers. Really, there's so much. I would love for you just to explain what it is that you have been doing in your career and how that lands you into this conversation. Sure. Actually, my wife says I can't keep a job. So all that <laughs> that bio is basically me trying to find my calling and and find some work along the way. But it's been it's been a really crazy uh, twenty years or so. Um, when you're talking at the beginning about the being a creative or maker artist and how do you define yourself? 
uh, Andrew Peterson, who's the singer and author, he uh, gave a talk about being a creative and he got up the next person up and said, I don't like the word creative because we're all creative. So don't use it as a noun. Maybe he scolded me for that. And, and I, from now on, I'm, I'm always like, Andrew, I'm so sorry for using that word and I will not use it again. But it is a challenge because we all have this creative bent. And, and um, you know, I spent 12 years in politics. That's, that was my start in how did I think about cultural transformation, these big words that we all want to think about and have happen, uh, cultural renewal. And I went to politics because that was back in 1994. That is what a good Christian warrior girl did. If you want to change society, you went to the place where you thought that was the most likely to happen with policy or with um, communications or election, electing the right person. Uh, so I spent 12 years there. But I, along that way, along that whole uh, decade or more, I learned that there was something else happening that had a greater force in shaping hearts and minds. Um, and that... And I was I was a creative person in politics, which is a challenge. But I was a writer and a speech writer and press secretary. So I was working within the ideas of how do you shape hearts and minds, the imagination, how you tell stories, how do you convince people to do things. But it was always this frustration that there's something greater in the wider culture that is that is far more powerful. And and most in DC don't want to admit it, but we. Uh, a group of us began to meet with artists and producers and writers and musicians and really to flip the table and say, you as a, a sub creator of, of the great artist, the master artist have such a gift and a power to shape uh, society in a positive way. What you are doing in your creative work will be remembered probably far more than what we do with this bill or this um, speech. And that whole argument of, that politics is downstream from the creative or the or the creative works uh, got me excited about. Yeah, I want to be with those at the fountainhead of cultural formation and creation. I want to be with the artist because the songs that we hear and the movies we watch and the books we read they linger with us and have such a great offering to um, the world. And uh, how can I help them? So that began my transition and, and just to, to move quickly because I could go on and on on that. But the, the next step of was working in the film industry. I, I got asked to work on a movie called Amazing Grace, which is a political thriller. Wilberforce obviously being the great abolitionist uh, who fought the slave trade uh, also had his own um, his calling to stay in the arena of politics and do good which uh, at that point in 2007, there was this conversation about what is more valuable. Is it better to stay in your business, in your arts, in politics, or is it, is it more worthy or worthwhile to be in, in uh, ministry? So that conversation touched a lot of leaders, got me into the film industry in a way that was uh, exciting with Walden Media, who does a number of books to film, still does this today. And uh, just changed change my whole view of what um, what I could do and hopefully help the maker um, contribute to this grander vision of, of what does it look like to be um, a, a follower of Christ, making excellent works and serving the world um, through your works. Well, I, for one, want to say thank you for your work on that film, because I remember seeing it and loved it. Um, and I love the tensions that were present in it because it was a work of art that was 
presenting this political dilemma. And um, much like you described, uh, I feel that tension in my own work. It's not just um, the political movement within the broader society, but even within the church or more formalized ministry. I know some people may be feeling that tension of where can I make the biggest impact? Will it be in broader society, in politics, in the marketplace? Will it be in the church? Will it be through my art? And I, I think that's a, a fascinating dilemma because we were also presented with the desire um, to do good in the world and to to make our time count. Um, and I think it's, it's a similar impulse, right? That similar drive of um, wanting to influence. Um, and, and I think what's fascinating to me from a ministry standpoint, um, my husband and I have spent the majority of our adult lives in ministry context. Um, there's a similar willingness in both ministry and art to kind of deny the realities of <laughs> of things like, I don't know, paychecks and finances, because you're so um, absorbed with doing good that some of the more mundane realities, we we kind of want to just not think about them. <laughs> Those things don't come as naturally, I would say. <laughs> the, the, the some of the practical things it's almost like it's um it, it's harder to move my brain in that direction and so i need this sort of counsel and help so eric help us <laughs> yeah yeah we're all this together well i think in 2007 8 when i was sitting in an office in walden media in la you could sense there's something changing this is when facebook was still i think in the dorm rooms of Harvard, you had uh, movies like Once and Juno come out that were smaller, that were not the the $40 million movie. These were five or $6 million movies shot very fast, three weeks. I think Once was a $300,000 movie in three weeks. And you had this shift in technology and distribution and content size. And I'm sitting there in, in, a, in a studio system realizing that these these epicenters of creativity, which we think that's the most creative place on the planet, is is L.A. or New York or um, certain companies, Pixar, and you realize there's something happening that was democratizing Hollywood in particular. And that was digital. That was the fact that you could now take a camera and a Mac and you could make a movie, or you could now distribute on soon after on. YouTube and reach billions of people instantly. And then soon after that was, oh, I can make a movie and actually get into theaters on my own if I can just have enough people that demand it. So that time period was, you're seeing this conflict and this real tension between who owns the the levers of creativity. Who, what does creativity mean? And what does distribution mean? And what does funding mean? Of course, then you had all these um, crowdfunding platforms that began to again democratize even that side. So that's been and that's been fun to watch my in my career just just tracking and almost um, having a parade view of this transition across major categories of creativity. So publishing, uh, music, film, and what you're seeing is that there's a the middle class is gone. Everything is big or small, big movies, tentpole movies, Avengers, and then small 
independence. Publishing, you have big authors that uh, demand a lot of support and are they're banking on those authors to do lots of sales and self-publishing. Music, you have labels and big tours and you have independent artists traveling the country trying to make uh, 40000 a year off of merchandise. So that, that's been the journey. And what I've been stuck in this middle is saying, okay, wh- what is going to be required of the artist going forward? We, we, we need the small and independent to work and what's keeping them from flourishing. And, you know, I, that's, that's where my mind begins to go. Okay. Well, we, you know, there's a lot of things about patronage and how does an artist break through the clutter? Um, you know, we have, I think every day there is 300 uh, hours, or actually every minute, I think now, every, every minute there's 300 hours of YouTube videos uploaded. There's 700,000 podcasts. There's 600,000 books published a year. In my business, we have 900 movies on a big scale, but there's something like 12,000 submitted to Sundance. So that, as an artist and maker, you're thinking, this is impossible. And what do I do? That's so, I mean, that describes my experience. Um, in you use the word democratization. And I think the, the benefit of the digital age is it gave access to a whole lot of people who had no hope of access, but it also gave access to a whole lot of people. And so now we're in the space where democratization means everybody's been involved. Everybody is present and from the perspective of the one, right, from the perspective of the maker, you're so grateful for the chance and the opportunity, but you're also like looking at this this space and it's like, how do I even break through? How do I even begin to be heard in this very noisy space? Because everyone's trying yeah. to be heard. Yeah, that's, there's this, there is a flip side. I mean, democratization um, has done many things, right? It's allowed us to discover, you said that earlier, discover new work. It's created riches in the niches, as they, as they say. It's the, you can now have a successful career with a thousand fans, as, as I think Malcolm Gladwell describes. There is a way to both discover your audience, but also discover artists. And so that, that is a wonderful thing. Um, there is that feedback loop now where you're getting real time response. You can, um, you can now have a direct conversation with your audience and I can now talk to artists that I may have never been able to talk to through digital. But along that same side is you have, okay, the increase of clutter, the most cluttered marketplace in history. Audiences are more fragmented and segmented and tribal. So this, this notion that you could be in an elevator and talk about a movie over the weekend that you've all seen is impossible. Uh, you're going to talk about the weather or Monday and Friday. That's, you know, that's kind of the conversation in the elevator. There's not a shared cultural narrative, which is part of this breakdown of why we're so tribalistic. And also digital flattens everything. That's, that's my concern is how do you say something's great? How do I know it's great? So the, the artist puts something out and digital is obviously flattening relationships and it's flattening quality. But because now I'm competing with anybody can make a, a song in 10 minutes and I'm competing with you know, the, the artist that's really skilled in their craft all of a sudden is in the same ecosystem together. And, and that flattens it. And, and I'm just worried that, that as an audience and as a patron, how can you, how do you know what is great? And that is where we have to 
there's lots of, of ways we can figure that out. But but digital has a dark side, a shadow side for sure. Well, that brings this question of so many options and and trying to figure out what is great, meaning what as a consumer or someone who is engaging with art, how do I decide which art I want to support with my my resources, but also my time and my energy. I can't take in everything. So I have to make choices as someone who is engaging with art. But as a maker, I know this. And then that's concerning to me because there are so many options. And for someone to give their their mental attention, their emotional attention, their resources, how can I break through to that. And you mentioned a couple of different things there. Um, the the marketplace allows this, and we have new ways of getting um, the attention and actually even getting some funding. What are you seeing out there that you recommend or you feel good in? Like, um, there are Kickstarters out there, there's Patreon. What are you seeing for, let's say, small scale, but then even up into the the category where you are with some of these films? Yeah, that's a great question. The, the, fir- the first thing I always tell artists is that you don't have to have an audience or a sale to be legitimate. Uh, there's this one or <laughs> you do not need a sale. You do not have to have um, your work be recognized and celebrated and awarded to have it be worthwhile. There is this wonderful quote. I cannot track it down. So someone out there can help me. But this author said, there are flowers on mountaintops that's created by God that will, that will never see. And there's fish so deep will never discover. Now, why would a master artist who, is for his own glory is creating, create things that his, an audience, his people, his creation would never see. And I think that translates into the artist where the artist workshop, the artist studio is a place where artists are working out their own salvation, right? They're working out with fear and trembling their own, their own uh, sense of, of life and of what, what the world is and what their, and their place in it. And that's okay. The trash can of a friend of mine who is a, an amazing uh, master penman, a calligrapher, that trash can is valuable. I mean, he's, he's working his, his art out. And I think we want to be careful not to say you're only valid and, and worthwhile if you can contribute something that's set, that is, is public. But now with that, we have, as you mentioned, people who have side hustles and they have their hobby, but they're, tr- or they're full time and they're trying to, cr- trying to create a business or a, uh, a livelihood through their work. And, and most of the time, it's not like we can say, well, you need to get a job somewhere else and do this on the side because their impulse and the way they're wired, they have to do this. They're not, there's no other choice. So they're, they're putting things out. And this is where we've asked too much of the artist and maker. We've said, you can be great at this work of art as a songwriter, but you also have to be great at marketing and deal making and partnerships. And that's, that's an impossible ask. It puts a burden upon the maker when really that is our job as, as the community around the artist has to take up and pick up that part of it and say, I will be your advocate. I will be in this with you with prayer and my presence and my encouragement. And I will make the case to others on your behalf. Um, so that, and the last thing I think there's a, there's a, and I think there's lots of platforms, right. That can help. But at the end of the day, it's all very, um, 
DIY. It's, it's still saying, I'm going to put my stuff on, on Kickstarter and hope people find it. I'm going to go market to my friends and my, and my communities to go find it. And I think there's an opportunity, especially in the church, for um, a new role of, and it could be, it could look different ways, but a new role of saying, um, these are the people, these are the artists that we believe in. And here's why you should support them as a patron, as an audience. It's not just about um, some kind of charity. It's actually good for the world that we have artists leading the way that their contribution, it may not be as measurable as business, but it's, it's, it's actually the thing that can, can um, improve our society, can add such layers and depth and meaning to our communities, can create a, um, a fullness of the gospel that we don't have currently. So there's, there's a lot, and again, we have lots of ideas. I think it's less about platforms or strategies. It's actually about rallying um, those around the artist to, to recognize their responsibility. Right. Because that puts the emphasis on community. Um, and, and I think one of the dark sides of the way the digital age happens is it's very fragmented and the individual with this democratization, the individual becomes, um, isolated as much as we are connected to each other and have the possibility to create communities and to engage with other people. There's also this kind of isolation because you're working perhaps at home or you're working on your platform or your channel. And what you are describing is a call to community and not for the artist necessarily to have to go create this community because I see that's what's happening. If, if a person wants to get their art or their message out, they have to create a community around themselves that then will carry the message forward. And rather what I hear you describing is that the communities that already exist, right? So your church community or your your family, you know, the people that are already around you. Yeah. It's amazing when an artist receives a text from a, from a friend or from a fan, what that can do for their day as they're sitting in isolation, working on their, on their keyboard to write their poem or book. I mean, it's, it's the smallest thing. And I, I've been really um, over the years uh, talking about the artist, but I, in the last year or so, have been talking to the patrons because that to me is, is the missing piece. You, we have over the last 20 years, the level of quality of excellence and substance in the arts has exploded, especially in the church. It's not a matter of quality. There's a, there's some theological um, improvements being made. I think about uh, some of the bigger stuff that we work on and we see is in, in the Christian space is not, um, not great theology, uh, but it's better production. So the quality is getting there. But what's missing, what's lagging is the wider church community that's recognizing the value of the artist and stepping up to that role. Uh, so the last couple of weeks ago, I was, I was trying to get really practical about what does a church community do with the artist that is leaving the church? This is part of the nuns and nuns, they call them, that are leaving the church. Is the, is the misfit, is the artist. They're, they're not finding their place there because that's not, they're not being welcomed and celebrated. So I just had this idea of it's one, 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 it's 1% of your budget. It's 1% of your, of your time. It's 1% of your space for a church. And that is 
Um, if you did 1% of budgets, $9,000 a year average for a church budget, it's one weekend a year where you say, artists come up here. We're going to pray for you. We're going to showcase your work in the back. We're going to have in the foyer, we're going to have you play music as we leave. We're going to commit this weekend to the artist. And that last one is the, is a space, which is saying, listen, um, we're going to have one classroom in our 17,000 square foot facility that we're going to give to creation and we're going to display things. We're also going to have work workshops and we're going to have um, the space for you to, to do your work here. If you need to get um, away from your home and have a place that's supporting you. And that, that practical 1% idea can also be done in the home as well. I think people recognize like, it's not, it's not as if we're asking some massive, a billion dollar fund that's going to be out in a new organization. It's really what you have already and applying that to the artist. And this is where, you know, Mako Fujimara and many others have been talking about um, the greatest community we have is the body of Christ with all its gifts. And we have to just recognize that we have artists in our midst that need us. And we have to turn the, the attention away from politics and, watershed moments of winning at the box office or winning Supreme court cases and say, Hey, the cultural plan for the next hundred years, if you want to have a strategy, it's going to be led by the arts. It's not led by argument. I love this idea of focusing time and attention within local bodies to have local impact that also can grow in impact. But I love it that it is supported by the people closest to you, that that community that knows you, knows your skills, believes in what you're doing. And there is, it's almost like you're, um, you're getting more accessibility to people. And as you are creating and working, the people who are interacting with what you are sending out into the world, they're better able to understand and place it with a real person rather than, um, let's say, a facade that we get out online. Um, I mean, we all have done this as makers. We've we've got to have this platform thing, but there's distance still between you and the people who are engaging with your art. And then there, it results in that celebrity status rather than a person who is creating something and really working these ideas out in his or her own life. So I love the sense of like creating the space where there's the engagement of the arts and it's right there. I think that's lovely. Yeah, this is, it's well said, Aaron, because this is, you know, some of these funding mechanisms, you're talking to people, just like you said, that, that are maybe friends or fans across the country that you won't see this year. I, I think any funding, any um, effort of the arts has to be hyper-local because if I go to the gallery and, and see the artists that I put money into and see their work, and that's a special moment for everybody. Like, that, you know, for the, for the patron, it's like, I help make that happen and I can, I can be there when it's celebrated. And for the artist to know that this is not just a transaction, it's a relationship with someone who's behind me, that will see them through the darkest times because they will have those struggles where they feel um, lonely, they feel completely like a failure, things aren't working, and they have and money won't solve that. It's got to be the person next to them that says, keep going, you've got it, it's a 20-year plan, it's a 50-year plan, you'll make it. That makes me wonder how many 
um, creators or folks who are in this space feel like they can share it within their church communities. Like I, I really, I'm thinking from my own experience of thinking of talking to other people who are in this kind of non-traditional work environment. And I'm just asking the question, like, what would it take for the maker or the creator to feel like they could be more, um, open within their own communities about the work they're doing. Um, and whether there's like, what is the weight on the maker to speak up and what is the weight on the community to pay attention and take notice? You know, it, it, there is this interplay where I know within my own work, uh, I would say the majority of people I talk to about it are people that are not local. Um, I mean, Folks in my community know that I do this work. I do have people who read my work locally, but for the most part, it has been on a much broader national scale rather than on a local scale. Um, and, and that's a question I'm kind of asking myself is why? Why has it not been local for me? Um, in terms of finding my, my most ardent supporters locally. Like I have friends who are very invested in and support me in the process, you know, as you support each other in life, but to actually um, cultivate a strong community that values the arts and the work you do. I I wonder, I'm just kind of sitting here trying to process my own experience and what are the barriers that an artist might face and why they wouldn't maybe be more vocal or be more open about the work they do. Yeah. There's um, I I think there's a massive problem with an aging generation that wants everything to have a measurement that it's not worthwhile. If it doesn't have some outcome that we can say it did this and in the arts, it's been applied to um, saving souls and, and having winning the culture wars. And if you're not an artist that's doing that, then we're not sure what to do with you. You know, you're a little bit weird. And then I just go back and say, well, okay, let's look at some of the greats. Look at the inklings who are in this back room of a pub sharing their work together. And what came out of that room with Tolkien and Lewis and others and or Wilberforce with a small group of friends who were included the artist, included Wedgwood, included educators around him. And so I, I, I'm, I'm committed that we have to think very small and local, but I'm also committed to the fact that the arts, you cannot put a measurable on the arts. You cannot put this, um, this obligation and burden to say you're not valuable unless you, in, in my business, unless you bring 300 people into a theater, a captive audience, and you do not let any ambiguity in that room, because that is what's happening with Christians, the arts is that you have to close the deal. You have to make it very clear and no one can leave this song or this book or this movie without knowing the gospel. And that is a fundamentally theological problem. That's going back to that. What I said is the arts are, are really about questions I mean, this is where Jesus is an artist. I mean, he, and I, I'm glad to say that he's an artist because what did he do? He told stories. He asked questions. He sat with people. He was present. He went to their turf and their terms. I mean, it was, 
he was a storyteller first and foremost uh, in his approach to how he, he reached people. And so I, I look at a movie, for example, and say, if I can have the audience be delighted and be confronted and have a, um, a moment where they lean in their seats forward because there's something about it and they leave and for three days they're haunted by an idea that they can't explain. I've done our, we've done our work. That is not the job of the artist to convert. If the job of the artist is to create the atmosphere and these little signposts that people begin to say, that's that I can't explain that. I can't explain why that line or that song or tune or that word or that visual cannot be shaken. That is such good stuff. Eric, I'm wondering, um, now that you have kind of flipped this all upside down for me, and I have so much to think about, this is so good. Um, I know all of our listeners are going to really appreciate processing all this too. Um, as we are bringing this episode down to a close, I wish we could just go on and on. This has been so good. But um, we're as we're bringing it down to a close, do you have any last things that you want to leave with our listeners who are makers and, and artists, and they're just trying to think, how do I move forward in, um, in a good way, being faithful with their work, and um, also trying to pull all these ideas together about not needing a measurement, and yet also trying to establish themselves? What sort of encouragement do you have for them? Well, I think they should be encouraged. I know. So we all know that there are dark days in the making process. And and there is the Holy Saturday in the Easter story is the, where the artist sits. It's Friday is a dark day. Sunday is a day of victory and, and overcoming. But there is this day when Jesus descended into hell. And as the Apostles Creed says, and there's a that tension of the in-between is where that middle space maker sits. So it's, it's never completely going to be fulfilled on this side of heaven, but you are in a very important day. And I would, I would say just be encouraged because as I see it from, again, from a parade view across everything that's happening, there is more happening in the arts. There's more opportunities than ever. And there are people that are going to rally and are rallying the funders and the mechanisms to support you. It's up to the artist though, to step out and say, Hey, I need some help. Or, you know, can you pray for me? Or can can we do something together to collaborate? So it's, there's an obligation on the artist, but the larger obligation, the, the, the firmest words need to be to those that are the audience and the patrons to get their act together, <laughs> to understand scripture better, to understand in their community, there are people in the body of Christ that have a massive contribution to make and they are ignoring it. And it's to the detriment of their own community and their own, their own lives. So be encouraged. There's people fighting for them. Things are changing. And, um, and I'm more optimistic today than I was yesterday. And this conversation to me is with you guys, what you're doing is a huge part of it, of just giving words and a space for this type of a dialogue. So thank you guys. Oh, well, we really appreciate you being here. And I love this vision that you've cast for us. And um, I do feel encouraged. So uh, we look forward to um, seeing what our listeners think. And all you listeners out there, um, if you haven't caught the other episodes in our series, I'll get all those listed and linked up for you in the show notes. And we will also make sure that you get all of the information for how to uh, catch up with Eric and follow all of his good work in arts and culture. 
culture. And with that, we would love to have your feedback. We love to have the conversation keep going online. So Hannah, do we have a question of the day? We do. And this is a very challenging question. Um, and I'm going to take this as a challenge to myself as well. The question of the day is, who do you need to share your art with? Um, Eric talked to us a lot about um, how communities need to take up artists, but artists also, uh, we need to be open <laughs> to revealing our work and sharing it with people. And I think sometimes it's easier to do online at a distance. So the question is, who comes to mind that you need to share your work with? Who locally, maybe a friend, maybe someone in your church, maybe doesn't even know that you do what you do. Um, so we'd love to hear how you're processing that question. Of course, you can join us um, on Twitter at Persuasion CAPC. You can also join us in the Christ and Pop Members Forum. You can also join us in the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum, where you'll find lots of other folks wrestling with these same questions. Um, if you are not a member, you can become a member by supporting Christ and Pop Culture for just $5 a month. And that helps us produce uh, persuasion, seeing and believing the other podcasts um, in the network, as well as the online writing and magazines. We want to shout out to Jonathan Clausen. He produces Persuasion and all the other shows in the network that Hannah was talking about. You can listen to them at ChristandPopCulture.com. You can go to iTunes. You can go wherever you listen to your podcasts. Wherever you are, we would love ratings and reviews because then other people can find us too and join our conversations. But we do thank all of you for listening to Persuasion, and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at ChristandPopCulture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. Name.